Mark chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 9. Now I need everybody's attention, okay? Because sometimes when you read a lengthy portion of Scripture, I know what happens. You're already planning lunch. You're already wondering what's going on tomorrow at work. So don't let your mind wander because we are reading from verse 9 all the way to verse 11. So concentrate, okay? We're going to read this and then we're going to pray. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being open, being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again this morning. We thank you for the privilege, genuinely thank you for the privilege of coming together and hearing your word and learning it. And God, I pray this morning that you would teach us by your spirit that we would hear what we need to hear and that you would help me to say what I need to say. God, there's a lot here and I ask your help to communicate it effectively. Lord, we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, for those of you that don't know, we are going through the book of Mark. We're going to go through the book of Mark until we get to the end of the book of Mark. So what we do is we take books of the Bible and we do expository preaching. That's a fancy way of saying we go verse by verse by verse. As a reminder, one of the reasons we do that is it causes you to get a correct and accurate picture of what the author of the book is trying to uh, explain or get across. But it, it also is helpful because you wind up preaching about things that you wouldn't normally preach about. If, if I was left up to me, I would preach about my favorite subjects over and over and over and over again. And uh, when you do it this way, you're forced to do some difficult passages. Now, this is not what I would call a difficult passage per se, but it is a deeper passage than what it appears. This is an example of us reading something, in my opinion, of us reading something that we know in the life of Jesus. How many of you knew that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist when you came in this morning? Raise your hand. You, you, most of us knew that. You learned it in Sunday school. And so what we do sometimes with Bible stuff that we already know is we just kind of scooch right along and wait till we get to maybe something that catches our attention. I'm not saying that that's wrong to wait for something to catch your attention, but it's kind of like having a steak dinner and looking at the steak and saying, I'm familiar with that. Let me look around here on the plate for something I'm not familiar with. Does anybody do that? Of course not. You eat the steak because it's delicious and wonderful. Straight from heaven. We're going to eat it there. There is a marriage supper of the Lamb, and I promise you there will be steak. Jennifer made some yesterday, seasoned it really well. Abby took a bite and went, oh. And, and that, is the re that is a reaction of holiness because it is appreciation for what God has provided. You don't look at steak or chicken or think of your own favorite thing and say, I'm familiar with that. 
It is unnecessary for me to sample it again. Let's try to find something else on the plate. That's not what we should do. We should not do that with the Word of God. There is always something here new, more. Daily bread is, you're never going to plumb the depths of God's Word. So, so you can go into it every day and read a verse you read yesterday and say, Lord, give me something wonderful from Your law. That's what David prayed. Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Let me see wonderful things from Your law. So this morning, I know you're familiar with this, um, but I, I want to go over a couple different things that are implied here some things that I got super excited about as I was studying, um, and I hope I can bring you along for the excitement. This is a, the event of Jesus' baptism is incredibly significant. It's really significant. Jesus was baptized. Just stop and think about it for a second. The Son of God was baptized. But this, this is... I'm going to get there, but this is a baptism of repentance. What in the world is the sinless Son of God getting baptized for in a baptism of repentance? Doesn't make any sense. It's also, and I've titled my sermon, for those of you that care about such things, it, I'm titling this sermon, The Launching Pad. Because this is the moment that Jesus' ministry is launched. Or if you want to say something else, this is the crowning day. In America, we would say this is inauguration day. This is the day that He is declared to be the Son of God to the public. And He goes out into the ministry from this day forward. There are zero miracles before the baptism, baptism of Jesus. He lived 30 years and just lived like you and me. As the Son of God. No miracles. No public declaration. He knew who He was. His mom knew who He was. That's about it. As far as we know. Now, there's legends and stories that the Catholic Church talks about. It's not scriptural, so we just kind of reject it out of hand. That's not, that's not something that we look at. But this is Inauguration Day. So the significance of Jesus' baptism is that it is ground zero for the ministry of Jesus. Now, here's something else I want to say. We, as we go through the book of Mark, because it's so rapid fire, remember it's over 50 times the word immediately is used. Immediately, immediately. This would be a great next several weeks and next several months for you to invite friends that are on the fence about Jesus, on the fence about church, on the fence about anything, or somebody you know that used to go to church that doesn't go to church now. How many of you know people like that? Our world is littered now, littered with people who have burnout feelings and hurt feelings and everything else. We are not a perfect church. Please preface that before you invite somebody. I'm not a perfect pastor. That'll be obvious within, it's quick, quickly obvious. But if you've got people in your life that need to know about Jesus, you, you should be inviting them to come because we are about to learn about Jesus over the next 
really seven, eight months as we go through this book. Okay, the baptism, inauguration day. Let's look at some of the other accounts because the other Gospels have it. Um, Luke chapter 3, verse 2. Now, we're going to put some of these verses up here to make it a little quicker. I want you to hear something that you don't hear in, in Mark's Gospel, but I want you to hear something about John the Baptist in Luke 3, 2. It says, During the high priesthood of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word of God, Luke chapter 3, verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah. What does that sound like? The word of God came to him. That is the same language of the Old Testament prophets when a prophet of God received a message from God to go deliver to the people of God. There hadn't been a prophet in 400 years. This is what we talked about last week. And now all of a sudden, the word of the Lord has come to John. And what is that word? Go into the wilderness and preach repentance. God's always sending people somewhere else. He's always sending them out in wildernesses. There's a lot that I could say there. But go out into the wilderness. Well, he was actually in the wilderness when, uh, when, he, when he was there, but he told him to stay out there and baptize for the forgiveness of sin. That is just something I want in your mind. I, I want us... I want you to try to get, as you picture John the Baptist out here and Jesus coming to be baptized, I want you to picture what's going on in Israel at this time. They are under the Roman occupation. They are sick and tired of the taxes, of the oppression. This is... Not ideal. And there is a fervency growing among Israel for a Messiah to come. Please, Lord, please let it be now. Please let it be now. Please let it be now. There are, throughout this period of history, if you look in the first century, you find multiple people trying to claim to be the Messiah. In fact, in the book of Acts, uh, they mentioned that this guy came up and this guy came up and he had a crowd of 200 and he had a, and it all fell to nothing because it was nothing. But the reason that was happening is, is the political and the cultural climate was ripe for something to happen. Some of Jesus' own followers are like this, by the way. Do you remember how many times that throughout the Gospels they're asking Jesus questions like, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? When are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What are they asking? When are we going to kick butt and take names? Jesus, we want to see some fire from heaven, and we want to see some people dead, specifically Romans. When, when are we going to do? When is that going to happen? That's what they're waiting for. They've got Old Testament prophecies that tell them the Messiah's coming, and when He comes, He's going to set everything right, and then there's going to be peace. There's going to be justice and judgment, and then there's going to be peace. And that is... Well, let's do it. And he had two disciples called the Sons of Thunder. Do you know how you get such a nickname? 
Because you want to kill people with fire from heaven. That's how they got the nickname. You guys think the Bible is some tame book filled with tame people? No. No, 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 no. This, this book is filled with angry, murderous people that God loves and uses. It's not the people I would have picked. So there's these guys called the Sons of Thunder. James and John. <laughs> and they wanted to call down fire from heaven to kill people. Just stop and think about it. Two of Jesus' hand-picked disciples wanted to kill people with fire from heaven. All right, you just you need you need to see this and think about this because why does John the Baptist have such a big crowd? He has a big crowd because the atmosphere, which is the way God did this on purpose, the atmosphere is ripe for an expectancy is high for something to happen, and then a camel hair dressed locust eating man comes out and starts preaching repentance. It's not a soft message. It's a return to heaven, return to the God of Israel message, and be baptized. And We're not doing it in the city. We're not doing it in the towns and then having a potluck afterwards. I want you to come out here into the river in the wilderness to have this happen. This is the scene that Jesus is coming into. And John the Baptist, like we said last week, is already more popular and well-known. Nobody knows who Jesus is. Nobody knows who He is. John the Baptist is the one that they're asking about if He's actually the Christ. I want to read you a verse out of Isaiah that kind of gives you the mood of the messianic expectation. Isaiah 64, 1 and 2, it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Rend. You know, the, the, the word rend means to tear violently. Rend it open. Like Hulk Hogan ripping off his t-shirt for all of the Hulksters that are out there that grew up in the 80s. <laughs> tear it apart. God, we want you to tear the heavens and come down. This is an expectate, this isn't just poetry. This is a messianic expectation that there would be a physical intervention by God among his people. Tear the heavens, come out of the supernatural other, and come here where we are. That's what they're asking for. And, and the way that when you read Isaiah 64 and 63 and you hear the longing that they have because they feel forsaken, they feel cut off because of their disobedience, that we need you, is what they're saying. I wanted to quote August Burns Red, who sums this up for those of you that like August Burns Red. Oh God, we live in misery, lying here in desperation. We need you here more than anything right now. And then they say it again, right now. This attitude of Israel that's going on is really important because it is like a powder keg that God is about to throw a match into. Jesus Christ. And it's not the explosion they were expecting. 
They're expecting military conquest. That is not what they're about to get. What they are about to get, if you look with me at the other, uh, at Matthew's account of John the Baptist's baptism, go to Matthew chapter 3. I want you to see this. Matthew 3, we're going to start with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? John the Baptist, as a prophet, with a message from God of repentance, what is John the Baptist thinking? This is a baptism of repentance. And I know who you are. I've been telling people that there is one coming whose sandal strap that I am not worthy to untie. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I need baptized by you. What in the world are you saying? Jesus says, verse 15, Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. Some translations say, permit it to be right now. For thus it is written, or thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John the Baptist, consented. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, which is exactly what you find in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' answer gives us a really important, and this is where we need to think about the steak that we're eating, okay? Gives us a really important glimpse into massive, theological, awesome stuff. Jesus has no need of repentance. And yet He's about to be baptized by the guy who said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The baptism was a symbol of the cleansing of repentance. And if you want to say it for the Israelites that were doing it, it was a rededication of sorts to serve God the way that they already knew that they should be serving God, but were not. And John's telling them, it's coming. The kingdom is coming. You, you've got to be ready. And they're like, yeah, we probably need to be ready. And they get baptized and, and they repent. And one of the, one of the uh, versions, it says that they were confessing their sins. So you can imagine out in the wilderness, a guy weeping and saying, I'm stealing, I'm lying, I'm cheating on my wife, whatever it is that they're saying. And they're confessing their sin. They're being baptized by John. And it's this powerful moment. And Jesus walks into that and says, baptize me. But he wasn't there. Trying not to be emotional. <laughs> he wasn't there for himself. He didn't need repentance. But you and I do. 
Jesus' answer tells us exactly what is up. He says, we need to do this, John, because it's fitting for us, it's right for us to fulfill all righteousness. I've always been curious. Has anybody else been curious about what the heck's going on here? Anybody? What do you mean, Jesus? What righteousness? So, I want to look at what I, I believe Jesus is trying to explain. One, I want you to see Romans chapter 8, verses 2 and 4. What righteousness is Jesus going to fulfill? Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's really good news. Now listen. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law couldn't do because the law was dependent on Ken Walker. The law cannot work in Ken Walker because Ken is sinful flesh. It couldn't work in all of national Israel because every single Jewish man and woman and child was sinful. And so here is a perfect law and a perfect standard from a perfect God with sinful people. God commands them to do it anyway, demonstrating that nobody can do it. This is really the whole argument in Romans. Nobody can do it. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How does He do this? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, Jesus, fully human, fully divine, He is there, but He's not sinful. And He was sent for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul is saying that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, when He answers John the Baptist and says, you've got to let this happen because I am here to fulfill all righteousness. Partly what I believe Jesus is telling John on Inauguration Day, launching His ministry is, I am going to do what you can't do. I am going to be the perfect, perfect example of what humanity is supposed to be, but I can only do it because I am the Son of God. And I am here to do it for you. So you've got to let me be baptized, John, to fulfill all righteousness. Now I still have a problem because there's nothing in the law of Moses that tells me that righteousness equals John's baptism of repentance. So where, where is that coming from? I think Jesus means when He says all righteousness, He means the righteous requirement of the law and everything outside of the law that is right. And part of what that is, so the first thing is, He's fulfilling the righteousness of the law. The second thing Jesus is doing is everything that is right in obedience to God. Everything that is right. So how in the world 
Does that make sense? I'm going to get some help from somebody smarter than me. Is that all right? This is uh, William Lane's commentary. This is what he says about what we're talking about. In submitting to John's baptism, Jesus acknowledges the judgment of God upon Israel. At the same time, his baptism signifies that his mission will be to endure the judgment of God. That's what's going to happen on the cross. Jesus comes to John as the true Israelite whose repentance is perfect. He is the beloved son, but he comes to the wilderness because sonship must be reaffirmed in the wilderness. John's appearance in the wilderness, his call to repentance, and his baptism signify that the time has come when God will execute a decisive judgment from which a new Israel will emerge. Jesus acknowledges this conviction which has roots in the prophetic tradition. He comes to John as one willing to assume the brunt of this judgment. The bearing of its burden constitutes his mission. Jesus is coming to be a substitute. You already knew that, right? How many times have we talked about his substitutionary death on the cross? He died for your sins. When you say that, you are actually saying, Jesus was my substitute. He was my substitute in punishment. He received the wrath of God. I received the mercy of God. I received the mercy of God because of the love of God. The love of God is what sent Jesus to the cross to take the wrath of God so that I could get the mercy of God. Jesus is our perfect substitute. He goes on to say in quotes, Jesus associates Himself with sinners and ranges Himself in the ranks of the guilty not to find salvation for Himself, not on account of His own guilt, because He doesn't have any, in His flight from the approaching wrath, but because He is, the, he is at one with the church and the bearer of divine mercy. Now you may be saying, Steve, that sounds a little more than what we wanted to hear. What these authors are saying is simply this. Jesus is going to have a people. Just like Israel is the people of God. Everybody can see that, right? Israel is not serving the Lord. All of humanity is in rebellion against God. The Jews don't even know that Jesus is going to include pig-eating Gentiles in this. The whole world is against the whole world is against God, and Jesus is identifying with a future church that doesn't exist yet, that includes Monica and Brittany and Seth and everybody who has ever been saved. Jesus is at this baptism saying, I am doing this for them. I am being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to do all the righteous requirement of the law. I'm going to do everything that's required to show perfect obedience because you can't do perfect obedience, but I can and I will. So when you become a Christian, God looks at you and sees not your track record, but Jesus' track record. Please see that. 
Jesus' track record is perfect. He is a substitute. Yes, the sin of the world was placed on Him at the cross, but Jesus did... Okay, why didn't... I heard John MacArthur say, or R.C. Sproul said this. If, if all Jesus had to do was die on the cross, then He could have parachuted out of heaven and went straight to the cross. Have you ever thought about that? Why did He have to be born and live a whole life? Because He lived out in perfect obedience everything that was required by God that Adam should have done, Jesus did. And in doing so, the Bible calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. Do you know how this works? All of you know how it works. Does anybody have a guilty conscience? Anybody at all feel bad about all the dumb things you do? I, I do. As my wife, I have an overactive guilty conscience all the time. All the time. And, I, and, I, and I'm preaching, but I shouldn't. So just bear with me as I preach through my own weakness. This is how Satan works. He's called the accuser of the brethren. The idea is a courtroom. God the Father is there. He is the judge of the earth. And you stand before Him in judgment. And Satan, the accuser of the brethren, says, Jack is guilty. He is guilty. And then he has a list, factual evidence of his sin. John Huck is guilty. Here, here, here. And it's 100% true. It's true. John did all those things. And then God looks at the facts and he says, I only see the perfect obedience of my son, Jesus Christ. I see the perfect obedience at the baptism at the River Jordan. I see the perfect obedience in the wilderness when Jesus said no to turning that rock into bread. I see the, perf the perfect obedience of Christ when he overturned the tables and said, my house will be called a house of prayer. I see the perfect obedience of Christ when He resisted the temptation to call down a legion of angels when He could have done it. I see the perfect obedience of Christ when He prayed and when He broke the bread in the wilderness and the zillions of other things that we don't know that He did. That's what I see. When I see John Huck's name, I see the perfect obedience and righteousness of my Son Jesus Christ and I see that every sin that John Huck committed has been cleansed by the blood of my Son and by His life of perfect obedience. Therefore, John is coming to my kingdom that I have prepared for you. That's what happens. That's what salvation is. That's what Jesus is doing at this baptism. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin was made to be sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus is a perfect substitute. There isn't better news. There isn't better news. Every one of you trying to live up to some kind of standard, you really should just say, you know what? I, I'm not going to be able to do it. And when you surrender the effort to prove to God that you're holy, 
you can, you can start living in holiness. Because God demands holiness from us. Don't hear me like, oh, well, Jesus, Jesus, do you see how why Paul had to say, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you see why he had to say it? Because when you hear this, you're like, oh my gosh, that is, that's fantastic. But the, the reality of this, that Jesus' perfect life, He's now living in us, and it's oozing out of us in holiness, in a hatred of sin. You, you see how that Christian living works with this. And that's why when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every single time we mess up, we go to Him and say, Lord, forgive me, and He does. This happened at the baptism. There's one more thing I want us to see, because obviously we could stop right here, but I, I, you just need to see in these verses the spirits descending on him like a dove. Not a dove. We got a picture. Greg did this. This is the famous, this is what, we got the baptism right here in visual form. The Holy Spirit was not a dove, is not a dove, descended like a dove. And if you notice that Mark, Mark chapter uh, 1, verse 10, when he came out of the water, he immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Do you notice that word? In Greek, it means to tear open. <laughs> so the English is 100%. It means to rip it apart. This is something that they saw and the Spirit of God descended. God, so it's this, this dichotomy of a tearing asunder and then like a dove peacefully coming down, the Holy Spirit of God rests on Jesus in His baptism. And the voice comes out of heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. John the Baptist tells us in John, you don't have to turn there, 129 verse 32, it says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, so God said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist witnesses this. He hears the voice. He sees the Holy Spirit come down like a dove, rests on Jesus, and remains. This fulfills all the messianic prophecies that are all throughout Isaiah. And I'm just going to read a couple of them. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's Isaiah 11. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 61, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is the promised Messiah. They see, John the Baptist sees, the Holy Spirit descending upon him, and Jesus is launching in to his ministry, anointed by the Holy Spirit, covered and filled with the presence of God in his humanity. And I'll probably talk about that some next week. 
He's ready to go. For us, what we see here in the baptism of Jesus is God declaring on His inauguration day, on the launching pad day, this is my Son. I am well pleased with Him. He's here to fulfill all the righteous requirement of the law that you can't fulfill. He's here to be everything I prophesied the Messiah would be, and He's going to do it in ways that you didn't know you thought He was coming to save you from the Romans. He's coming to save you from your sin. That's what He's coming to do. And that's what we're about to read about. His life of perfect obedience for the next year in His life and His ministry. I want everybody to bow your head with me if you would. I want you to, because we're going to receive communion here in just a moment. I want you to think about how many hours you and I have wasted over all our imperfections. And I want you just to say this morning, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. You who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God in you. Not a righteousness of my own. Not something I worked up and deserved. Jesus, thank you for fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law and all obedience on my behalf. If you don't know Him this morning, this is a great morning to just say, Jesus, I surrender to You. You're not surrendering to a religion. You're not surrendering to a political party. You are bowing down to the King of the universe and saying, I accept Your perfect sacrifice on my behalf. Lord, I pray You would make it real to us this morning. I pray, God, that You would give hope. God, I pray that You would draw out worship from Your people as we think about these things that are so great. It's beyond comprehension. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we thank You for that. I want to have everybody stand up. We're going to receive communion together. If you didn't get the communion elements, they are out there in the hallway. When Mark wrote, 
verse 10 and said that the heavens were tore open. It is a reference to Isaiah 64 where Israel prayed, Lord, please tear open these heavens and be with us physically. And now here He is. And the heavens are torn open. The Spirit of God descends on the Son. I am been a Christian for a long time. The more I study the Bible, the more you see how God has done so much for us. The, the depths of what, what is in His Word. It's just, it's wonderful. I I pray this morning as we take communion, as we say, Lord, Your blood was shed for me, Your body was broken for me, that it takes on new life, that this is just not not a ritual. This is a confession of faith in the ongoing presence of God in our life because the heavens have been permanently torn apart and the Son of God here 2,000 years ago, left and he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit is coming. If you're a Christian this morning and taking this meal as a born-again believer, the Spirit of God that descended on Christ is in your heart now. These are big things. This is why for endless days we will sing God's praise. So Lord, we are going to take this together this morning and I pray that the significance of Your sacrifice would be with us all this week. God, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be preoccupied with You and what You've done. God, not with us, but with You. God, I pray You would do Your work in Your people. You who began a good work in us will see it completed till the day of Jesus Christ. And we thank You for that today as we take this meal together. Let's do that. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we can ask or imagine, to Him be glory in the church, through Christ Jesus, throughout all generations. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed.